Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. Now, we are here as organizations and leaders to try to deliver results. No question about that. However, your results ultimately really depend on how inspired and engaged your team is. And you probably already know that. Both of those, along with absolutely every other quality that you'd like to have on a team, such as psychological safety, speaking up, innovation, challenge, collaboration, getting good feedback, developing capability, even inclusivity, begin, I believe, ultimately with having the people on your team feel that you care about them as a whole human being, not just as their output, but as who they are as people. Now, at our current pace, those are incredibly easy words to say, but not so easy to implement. And I talk with leaders all the time who believe they're doing it. When I talk to their teams, they're not feeling it. So too many leaders are telling me that they've lost the time to have those meaningful conversations or those casual conversations. As we've gotten our time scheduled in 25-minute blocks even, just to be able to make it between meeting to meeting. So the topic for today is how do we get compassion and caring back into the everyday fabric of our leadership without losing track of everything else that's on our plates to get done? My guest today is Paul Axtell. There are very few people who have the privilege of making it three times over, and this is Paul's third appearance for me. Paul provides consulting and professional effectiveness training uh, to Fortune 100 companies, to universities, and a host of others in between. The focus of his work is the possibility of being remarkable as an individual and as a group. He's the author of Meetings Matter, Eight Powerful Strategies for Remarkable Conversation, a book I highly recommend, and it's received a lot of accolades, including the Golden Award winner in both nonfiction books and the Benjamin Franklin Awards the Silver Award winners and the Nautilus Book Awards and the first runner-up in the Eric Koffer Prize. And if those don't mean much to you, I think it suffices to say that a lot of other people also agree with me that that's a great book. Now, his other book, Making Virtual Meetings Matter and Making Virtual Learning Matter. And you can learn a lot more about those books as well as his work at paulaxtell.com. The book we're talking about today, though, is called Compassionate Leadership. I should add also that Paul has written an additional book that has gotten a lot of praise in a completely different way, and it's called The 10 Powerful Things You Say to Your Kids, Creating the Relationship You Want with the Most Important People in Your Life, which applies his work with organizations and with leaders to those special relationships between parents and children, and it was named a Best Parenting Book by um, an independent publisher magazine. So, Paul, with pleasure, welcome back. Well, thank you for having me. Three times, wow. Three okay, times. They say three times a charm. Well, uh, well the, the last two were charms, so we're okay. in for a, a golden experience today. All right, I'm curious. I love your books on meetings, as you know. I tell everybody that that is the one that they need to read. I say to everybody, we have lost the etiquette of how to run proper meetings, so I'm a big fan of that. What got you to turn to this notion of compassionate leadership? Why does this matter to you? Well, I think there's several reasons. First of all, I care a lot about first-line supervisors. Um, that was my audience for a long time, along with the wage earners, the wage workers that work for those first-line supervisors. They have one of the toughest jobs in the world, in my estimation, and we're giving them no training. Um, so I feel for them, and I've encountered lots of them who, you know, when you get to be a supervisor for the first time, you have this notion, I'm going to be awesome to work for. I'm going to be the best person people ever had to work for. And then over time, that just gets diminished. It gets run down by how busy you are and conflicts and 
And it comes down to a simple lack of training. Um, so that's one interest. The other thing is, I remember Wanda working in a factory and the classroom was in the middle of the factory. So security would put me on a four-wheel vehicle and drive me into the factory in the morning before the training would start. And they said, well, you want us to pick you up? What time? And I said, no, I'll have somebody walk me back through the factory at the end of the day. And it'd be three or four day course. And so I would just ask the class, somebody would like to walk me back at the end of the day. And four or five young guys, engineers said, sure. So I'm thinking, wow, we're going to talk baseball or they're going to show me through their part of the factory. No, every time they wanted to talk about, they're worried about being a good father because they were raising their kids like they were raised and they didn't like it. They didn't know how to be in a relationship and their spouses wanted them to talk more, but they really didn't like to talk. And so five times in a row, here's young people who, when given a chance, wanted to say, you know what? Home's not working for me and I don't know what to do about it. So that says, wow, there's a lot of people out there who are alone. People who project confidence, but underneath, if they're given a chance to talk about The other thing I think was my own personal journey to kind of get over being scared in life and then to finally realize there's probably more people out there being scared and trying to do life from that perspective than just me. So I think those are the things. Then the last piece is I, when a new word shows up, I investigate, I start journaling about it. Like right now, the one I'm journaling about is curious. This, you know, we've gone through empathy, we've gone through um, engagement, gone through mindfulness in the last three years. And I just say, it seems like curious is starting to come up. So I'm starting to journal and write about. Well, compassion is one that I journaled about 15 years ago. For some reason, it was in the thing. And I thought I'd just read three or four sentences from my note from back then because it kind of answers the question, what do you mean by compassion? And you mentioned business results, and I think that's important. If you care about results, then you should be interested in compassion. If you ask for a miracle, you better appreciate what it took to get there. I like that. It seems to me that compassion says is the recognition there isn't much difference between the one who's asking and the one who's being asked. Compassion is knowing the other person's feeling uncomfortable and at risk and knowing you really can't know how they feel. It requires being able to be present to where the other person is, not handle it. That's an important thing for me, not handle it, not to suppress it, just to let it be there like present. And the last piece is compassion to ask another person to place themselves at risk where they might not look good, where they might not succeed, where they might not be comfortable or where they simply might not like to be. (laughs) So that all resonated with me because it fit my own experience. So, um, and I think I've always wanted to write a book for supervisors and managers so they could get how important they are to the people that work for them. Because if they would get that, I mean, if you think about it, the best people to work for are the ones who want to be the best people to work for. It all just begins with intention. So sorry for the long answer, but. That's um, okay. That was a good answer with a lot of legs on this one. Good. Um, I'm going to come back to your comment about supervisors and particularly you said in the manufacturing floor. One of the things that struck me, I guess it's more than 10 years ago, I did a training for a financial services company for people who are first-time managers. Mm -hmm. And what I was struck by there, so we're not talking about factory, we're talking about high IQ, high IQ workers, you know, dedicated professionals, all that sort of stuff. And I realized working with that group that those folks face some of the hardest leadership challenges that exist in the planet with the least training, the least resources, and the least access to folks who can help them. You know, you're dealing with people who found out they don't love this job, but they're Mm -hmm. stuck. And you're dealing with people who haven't yet developed the kind of professional skills or who are making mistakes that are going to cost, and because they're learning, they're new. 
all of that without any experience in how do you lead or even understanding yourself or where you're coming from. You know, and we're doing all of that at the time that family, if you have family, is at some of its hardest stages, those very early years when there's so much time and so little sleep, right. to put it simply. So I agree with you that our first line managers, regardless the industry, need yeah. more help than we're giving them. And it's not just, let me show you how to do the systems or how to run a performance management. It's much more complicated than that. So that's the first piece I wanted to say. Okay. The second thing, um, isn't it interesting I'm sure in your work, as in mine, how many times what's happening outside of work is bleeding into how effective somebody is at work. So if it's not going well in whatever home looks like for people, it's showing up in their person at work. And I know we try as coaches to ignore that, but I gave up a number of years ago. You can't. Right. I agree completely. People say they have this ability to change who they are the moment they walk into the family room after work. I don't think so. I think it just bleeds over. And as you point, vice versa, which is I think the places where my work has made the biggest difference are the places where the managers, the top managers are fine with people working on their families first. And if they get an idea that applies to their 17-year-old son, it'll apply to their colleague at work too. Mm -hmm. Because they're more likely to be thinking about their family anyway. So, yeah, I agree. Well, you know, if you've got somebody who's sitting there, I'm going to take it a slightly different version. Um, Somebody who's working for you who has a major aspiration, let's say, to travel, to have an experience halfway around the world to know right. what that's like. Okay. Okay. That's impacting their dedication to how long they're staying with you. Okay. Fair enough. I'm not, you're not faulting right. anybody on that one pro or con, but gee, as a manager, if I knew that and I could think about how to encourage their curiosity. I could think about how to build their connection with somebody in that country for some purpose that we're already doing. I could just talk with them about, you know, when do you think that could happen? And geez, could we delay that by six months? If, if there's that conversation, there is much more of a commitment to what you're doing in the work. You feel like that's a person who cares about you. Yeah, I agree. I like it. Okay. All right. Now, the third thing that struck me in your introductory part is you said your journey was about getting over not being scared. And I can't just let that one sit there without asking a further question. Tell me more. What was it about scared and how did you get over it? Well, I don't know that I'm over it yet. Um, Well, I had two wonderful parents. So, That's the baseline. But my mother was scared of everything in life. She always kept the house completely locked up. She took a bath. She'd put two inches of water in the bathtub because she didn't know how to swim. And my dad would just, he wasn't very communicative. He didn't say much. And he would just hold things in. And then eventually he'd explode and he would disappear for four days. So one side, mom's scared, and the other side, dad is non-communicative, awesome guy, but non-talkative. And then he would get to the end, and he would just disappear. And so that showed up in two ways. Number one, I didn't have a date in high school. I didn't have a date in college because I'm too scared to ask somebody out. With texting, I think I could get it done, Wanda. I think if they had texting (laughs) back then. Uh, But then I end up not saying much in most situations, pretty quiet. Now, actually, I think quiet and reflective, I don't use the word shy. I think that's kind of a death knell. But quiet and reflective is a pretty powerful way to be in life. But if you take that to the extreme, you're difficult to live with because you're not talking. People have to guess at where you are. In a meeting, people are wondering particularly if they respect you, they're wondering what you're thinking and where you are. So 
Um, so that's kind of it. How did I get? So basically, when you're scared, you end up making up another story about yourself, which is I don't have any self-confidence. Mm-hmm. And then if we could also have a conversation about what's your development journey with respect to the thoughts that occur in your head? Yeah. And for a long time, I would go out with consultants and I'd have this thought called, you're not as good as you think you are. Mm-hmm. Like, now where in heck would that come? Well, it comes from me trying to build myself up by taking them down, which is another indication I don't have a lot of confidence. Well, at some point that just disappeared. I don't think that about anybody anymore, ever. Mm-hmm. But it's a milestone in my own development that I like who I am. I'm confident in what I do. But you develop strategies to overcome anything that you're not. And the number one strategy I had was prepare. Mm -hmm. I prepare 30 times more than what I'm going to need. And that actually allows me to be good on the fly. Um, So there's always a strategy to overcome what you've got. But I think... It's more important to me about what is the long-term thing that you and I are trying to overcome, because that's a very powerful driver for development. Mm-hmm. Did you have a manager along the way who took that kind of interest in you? Well, I did. I had some wonderful managers to learn from some who were awesome and some who had their own kind of survival instinctive move that made it difficult. But I first uh, went to work, the company I worked for was Monsanto. And for a period of time there, if you hired somebody, the perspective was you're responsible for the person you hired for 20 years. You need to track them, follow their career. And so they had a six-month decision point. Do you want this person for the next 20 years? If not, we're going to let them go. And so what happened is, and I worked for a gentle guy named Kurt Frank, but he was committed that if there was something about you that was not going to turn out long-term, he was going to take it on. So... Yeah, I've had three or four managers who were, I would call disruptive. That is, they're willing to say, this is insufficient, this is unacceptable, get it handled. And I think all of us are can point back to people who told us the truth and then trusted we'd figure out what to do about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely. I think the only managers who didn't care about me didn't give me any feedback. Right. Right. So I do think an awful lot of people get, not everybody, but a lot of people get confused between this notion of being compassionate means I'm kind and caring and only tell you the positives. Whereas I think what you're meaning by compassion and what I believe is effective is that I care enough, I'm compassionate enough to tell you the truth about what's working and what's not working, um, and that that is a different kind of compassion. Yeah, I, I do think your perspective is that I've got a human being in front of me who's complex and their lives are complicated, and I don't know exactly what's going on for you, but that doesn't prevent me from being straightforward and candid mm-hmm. and honest with you. Why take this at another tack? If you did something that didn't work for your colleagues, would you like to know? And could you handle being told? I think absolutely. You would like to know if there's something that doesn't work and you would like to be told. And you can handle it. Mm -hmm. You might be upset. You know, you might get emotional for a little while. You might be, have this whole worry storm about what people think about you, but eventually you know you'd be fine. Well, to think that anybody that works for you can't handle being told, it doesn't make any sense. Okay. It's actually, maybe this is overstated, it's arrogant for you and I to think that somebody that we work with can't handle the truth. 
That's a that is a pretty powerful statement. Okay, and I know you like me are a fan of Kim Scott's work, Radical Candor, and this yeah. notion that when people believe you care about them as a human being, they will take whatever you say in the right light. But when they think you don't care, that same comment starts to feel a little brutal. Okay. Yes. At the same time, I still think you're right. People would rather know the truth yes. and then react accordingly. Okay, well, and I love the men- place, uh, right. Not only do they need the care, but you've got to be good. You've got to be competent. You've got to operate in a way that people respect who you are in the world for others, for people who are not present. So your reputation, your credibility, in addition to the fact that you care about people, all plays into how people are going to take anything you tell them. Right. Right. Okay. And I love the Monsanto boy. Would this be a different world? Just to think if you hired somebody, I was responsible for saying we're hiring this person six months in, I'm either making a commitment to fire them or I'm accountable for, I'm responsible for their career for the next 20 years. And I'm committing to track how they're doing for 20 years. Boy, would that change a few things about what we do, how we hire, and so on. Okay. Fascinating. I can imagine a lot of managers are squirming with that idea. Okay. So, let's go back. Um, I have one more sort of high-level question to ask you, which is, do you think it's true that we have lost a sense of compassion, or are we just focusing on it today in ways we never focused on it before? Well, I don't think we've lost sense of it. I do think the world is less civil. And the primary reason it's less civil is that people can yell at you and not be responsible for what they're saying. Uh, You mentioned the meetings book. I wrote an article for the Harvard Business Review. And so I was interested in what are the comments people are going to say about this article. Mm -hmm. And the first comment was, why are we writing about such rubbish when there are people starving across the world? Mm -hmm. It's like, where did that come from? (laughs) Um, And so that's, if you look at chat line, social media there, it's uncivil because people have access to saying things to you without being present or responsible for what they're saying. Right. Um, So the volume is there, but I think in the fields that we're playing in, in relationships and organizations, family, friends, I think it's still there. Now, I, I do think the question is, do people know how you do that in the moment. Yeah. Um, because compassion is a big high flutin' word. And I don't, I don't, I'm an engineer, so I don't move towards, can, do you feel compassionate? That isn't, I, I don't get there. I don't know about feelings, but I do know what are the practices associated with people feeling like they've been heard, okay. feeling like you care about them, feeling like you're interested. So if we just look at one simple thing, checking in with people, asking them about their weekends, asking how their daughter's doing in her first year at college, asking them how that business trip went, asking how working from home is going. We have lost maybe we don't have it anymore, but the art of checking in with people and truly being interested in what they're going to say. If you simply, you know, check in with three people a day, listen flat out for four minutes, you will build a reputation that people think you're interested. Not that tough. And this one of the principles in the book, one of the things I love about the, the book is that there are 16 principles, 16 simple things you do to show compassion. And trust me, they are all easy to do. And there's a lovely little do this, this, and this, which is fabulous. 
Um, but one of those is this notion of listening. Okay, so we all know it's important, but I think everybody's biggest fear is I'm checking my clock and I got to make the next meeting and I've got this thing to do and I have these 50 emails I haven't looked at and we have that anxiety associated. And your idea is just to stop, ask a question and listen for four minutes. Then you can go on for four minutes. Wow, that's simple. And it makes a difference. Yes. You, I'm sure you've had the experience of going to lunch with somebody for an hour and not leaving feeling really connected to them. Yeah. I think what's in our way here is people have the wrong meaning associated with listening. They think it's about comprehending, following, and then doing something with what you say. So we're trying to follow what you're saying, thinking I've got to now somehow do something with what you say, whether it's problem solving, whether it's reassuring, whether it's adding. The missing piece is doing nothing with what somebody says, just taking it in, getting it. So a complete communication, this goes all the way back to the Andy Rooney neighborhood movies, is you say it, I get it, and then you get that I got it. Get it, got it, good. Like in law enforcement, they say 10-4 or roger that. That's the completion thing. Well, people don't get that if you just pay attention, a little bit of eye contact, pay attention and do nothing. Relax and hang out in the conversation. People feel heard. And if they feel heard, they can say a lot in two and a half minutes. And at the end of four minutes about you telling me about your kid's soccer tournament, I can say, hey, thank you. Appreciate catching up. I need to be someplace else. So four minutes instead of 20 minutes. And do nothing kind of listening versus what do I do with what you say? Hope that helps. I think that's going to help an awful lot of people. I love that four minutes. Um, it's also interesting that you have to have a way of ending the conversation and moving forward. And you just gave a beautiful example there. I appreciate you telling me that was a fun story. I really enjoyed hearing your perspective followed by, I have to be someplace else right now. Yeah. I want to, another thing people think, well, to demonstrate I'm interested, I need to ask a follow-up question. I, you know, I overstate things. I think when you ask a follow-up question to demonstrate you're interested, you just lied. You ask a question about what you're not really interested versus just say, hey, I love this conversation or I appreciate you tell me. That would be closer to being authentic than to make up some question to try to prove you're interested. Why not just say I'm interested? And if there is something you're curious about, then... Cool, but not to make up a question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I love Michael Bungay-Stanier's thing, uh, which a lot of people do, but his especially book is when you're talking about coaching and listening to people who just says, tell me more. Yes. and That's an easy one to say. But again, if you don't really mean tell me more, then you are lying and that's not going to be productive for the conversation and the relationship. So, okay, I like it. Yeah, well, there's a lot of very subtle things in language and, you know, that's what I'm interested in, but. What else is like a final call? Yeah. I'm sorry. Anything else is like a final call. What else is keep going? So what else would be the same thing as tell me more? Yeah. Yeah. What else? Yeah. It's great. Okay. I want to talk about a principle that I find particularly relevant. It floods through all of my work on a regular basis. And that's principle number four. And I'm going to quote from you, people are complicated, sometimes difficult. Sometimes people do things that are complicated for complicated reasons. Okay, so how do we begin to think about the complex people situations out there and still maintain compassion? Well, I would go to another idea, which is whatever people do in the moment, in that moment, it made sense for them to say it or do it. Now, looking back, they might realize, well, that was not a very good thing to say or do. It's why regrets is a nonsensical 
notion. You regret something you said or did in the past, but at the moment you said or did it in the past, it made sense. It perfectly made sense <laughs> given what your experience was in the moment, what the little voices in your head were saying. So the whole notion that people do stupid things like it's premeditated. No, it's not so. It's for whatever reason in this moment, and they're simply doing it. Well, I think there's a lot of freedom in get. They're not bad people. They're just people who in this moment, it somehow made sense. For instance, when people are upset, um, one of the things I recently wrote about was in difficult situations, when people are upset, they don't communicate in a kind, generous, thoughtful way. They just lash out. And if they don't feel like they're being heard, they just ramp up the volume and they ramp up the drama. And so you could consider, particularly if you're raising kids, you are the source of all the drama in these kids because it's a response to not feeling like they're getting your attention, that they're not being heard in the moment. And they'll just keep ramping it up until they, and in public, they'll take that, what take them five times to get your attention at home. They'll go there in an instant and cuss public. They know you're going to pay more attention. But anyway, the mantra is don't offend and give up your right to be offended. Now in today's world, boy, you can be, offended all the time, but you should notice who's upset. You are. And then you take that home to your loved ones. You take that into your next meeting. So for me, it's A, on the practical side, Paul, give up your right to be offended. But what allows me is to think people are great. And for some reason in that moment, it makes sense. Um, I also think if you look at how we think about ourselves, Wanda, we kind of think we're kind people, that we're good people, and that we have unlimited potential. That's how we view about ourselves. We might not be doing much to pursue that potential, but we know we've got this untapped capacity. Well, why wouldn't we think about that with this person who's frustrating us right now? Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I often thought about is we don't know what's going on for somebody in the last eight, 24 hours. Maybe they put their parents in assisted living last night. Maybe they said something to their partner in life that they're now wishing they hadn't said and they didn't get it cleaned up before they went to work. Maybe they're struggling financially. You know, who knows? what's going on in the recent history for that person that's at play. Right. And they're not their best selves, but they're not their best self for a reason. And they're likely not to tell me what the reason is. Right. And I think what's interesting is when I encounter someone who's being quote unquote difficult or complicated or has said something that made no sense to me, I assume it was about me. And what you're doing is saying, let that go. You don't know what this is about. Something happened for them that made this behavior make sense right now. But you don't know what it is. Yeah, very good. You make a, a really good point about part of being a human being is to take things personally. Mm -hmm. In fact, the only way to stop taking things personally is stop caring. And, you know, if you're... If you get upset when you have a favorite sports team, that's because you care about them. You identify with them. Well, the only way to get over that is to stop caring about some sports team. Well, who wants to give that up? Because then you lose all the fun in life. So we've got this notion that, it's, Paul, it's not personal, it's just business. We would not say that if we didn't really know it is personal. We wouldn't do that. Um, so it'd be better off to say, hey, we know, I know this hurts. I know this feels personal. And clearly, it's affecting you. So it is personal. But now let's talk. So that's the first piece. You and I take things personally. The second piece, though, is we can choose not 
to respond out of taking something personally. We can choose the high road. That's why the adage is count to 10, walk around the block, don't send that email right now, send it tomorrow. In the moment, just acknowledge somebody told you something, but don't do anything with it. So one of the most powerful conversation moves is, thank you, I appreciate being told. Versus explaining why you did something, no, thank you. I appreciate being told. And you know, you might be right. So part of this handling difficult conversations is to realize, A, I'm going to get hooked back because I care. And I don't <laughs> want people to be upset. And I've got to make sure that I respond in a way that I'm not later going to regret or make things worse. Right, right. I love that one. So when a manager tells you don't take it personally, they're basically telling you not to be human. Exactly. And they're just saying, I'm scared of telling you this. Or I don't want you to struggle with this so much because I might have to do something about it. And that stuff just, I think you jettison it. One of my favorite things when somebody says something that really seems way outlandish, particularly if they're angry or there's a bit of hostility coming in, it it does feel personal. I sort of say to myself, something is going on with that person. I don't know what it is. It's not about me. Yes. I'll say it's not. And I will say that over and over again. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. Out in my head, not out loud to the individual. That's not a good strategy. Because it allows me not to pick up the emotional discharge that they just made. And then I can go away and process and say, geez, did I do something? Or was it some other event that is causing Tony Ray? It makes it easier to come back around to it. I love that. Okay. Um, uh, There's another principle of yours that I am particularly, there's a bunch of them that I'm particularly fond of. One is principle five, appreciation, a compassionate move, you say, Don't wait for someone's actions to be above and beyond. Sometimes simply showing up deserves recognition. What do you mean by that? Why is that important? Well, first of all, I have a distinction between compliments and acknowledgement and appreciation. Compliment is I like what you did or I like what you have. Compliments are great. But one of the reasons we get low scores on recognition in employee surveys is people don't know what value they bring to the organization. They don't know what their boss thinks of them. They don't know if the organization values them. So it's kind of a missing piece. And let's take the the handwritten notes that you get that you keep in your drawer for years or the birthday cards that include a letter inside of them. Those are the most powerful example of acknowledgements because they're not simple compliments. Somebody has written about what they appreciate about you as a person, what you provide, what you bring to them, why they love you being a part of the family or the group. Or retirement parties when people are talking about how they're going to miss you. So those are would be the most powerful forms of appreciation would be a handwritten acknowledgement note because it exists, it persists, people can keep it, pull it out and reread it. But the essence of it could be in a normal conversation to, you know what, I just appreciate the aliveness you bring to this group, your spirit. I just appreciate your work ethic. I love knowing you're going to be in a meeting because as soon as I see that you're on the invite list, I say, okay, this meeting's going to work. Um, and it's just missing because we really haven't trained people to be outwardly expressive of what we like about people. And we don't even think about what it is. So you've probably done the exercise with some of your coaching where they have, they're working for somebody they dislike. And you ask them to come up with, oh, I want 10 positive interpretations about your boss. You give me those 10 interpretations because it now starts to shift the one or two negative things that they're dealing with. Well, that's what acknowledgement does. If you periodically acknowledge the people so that they feel connected, so they feel valued, um, it's also pretty simple. Let's go back to that checking in conversation or people contribute in some meeting. 
the most easiest way to acknowledge people for them and say, you know what, here's what I'm taking away from our time together. Here's what I'm taking away from our conversation. So when you say, here's the value I'm taking away from a conversation, it honors the conversation, it honors the relationship, and therefore it honors the person. But how many times have somebody gone to coffee with you and then say, hey, Paul, thanks for making time for me. Here's a couple of things I'm taking away from our conversation. Now, if you apply this to leadership, that's what I want the top person in the room in the meeting listening for. At the end of the meeting, what are they going to say they took away from the conversation? Right. Yeah. Uh, Just imagine how we would all feel if we had a conversation with somebody and they said, okay, I appreciate something about you and here's what I'm taking away. Yep. Geez, that would be okay. And that's not that hard to do. Actually, not that hard at all. Um, I often say, like you said, if you're having a relationship that is not working well, nine times out of 10, it's because you're finding all the faults and not finding any of the upsides. Mm -hmm. And I say to people, give me one thing you value about that person. I don't care what it is, but one thing you value. And then I say, show that. This coming week, show it one way. I don't care. Drop the rest of it, but show me the one thing you value. It's amazing how quickly you can turn a relationship around to get it back onto an even footing. Yep. Very powerful. It is a very powerful one. Okay. um, Tell me about principle eight, which says being great with complaints. How do we do that? Because, you know, you're a leader. People want to tell you everything that's wrong all the time. Yeah. Well, the first thing is there's two, you can image this, two pieces to a complaint. The first is emptying the other person out. Mm -hmm. And then the second piece, and when you empty somebody out, you're just taking it in. You're just listening to it. Maybe a quick question for clarification, but you basically, okay, what else? Okay, got it. What else? Okay, got it. What else? Okay. And then if you have to summarize, there's multiple pieces to it, fine. But mostly, you're just getting it. Now then, rather than defending or explaining or giving people the background that will have them feel better about it, you just simply say, okay, I got it. What is your request? Mm -hmm. What would resolve this for you? The thinking is behind every complaint is a request or request that if you would take on and deliver, it would handle their complaint. Now, what's interesting, and sometimes people never quite get this, if you hear people out fully and then you get to the request things, okay, so what do you want? What would resolve this for you? What's your request? Most of the time they're going to say, oh, I just, I appreciate being able to tell you I'm good now. Because the complaint part, they just need to clear it. They just need to get it out there. And the moment they get it out there and it's been acknowledged as heard, They're over it. Um, So it doesn't require reassuring. It doesn't require problem solving. Plus, that's one of the things, if I look at employee surveys, one of the big complaints about employee surveys is we give you all this data. A year later, you haven't done anything about it. Or you didn't fix it. Well, it's because, number one, it's anonymous. So you can't talk to the person who actually holds that complaint. But secondly, you're guessing at what would resolve it for them. Mm -hmm. So if you say, okay, we heard what you said on the employee survey. What's your request? See, the moment they say, this is what we're asking for, you're now dealing with something that will move the needle. Right. Um, Here's why this conversation is important. Everything in life that is not working could be interpreted as a complaint. And so if you have the ability to listen to people till they feel heard, and then say what you think, you can handle all of life. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, you know, That's just pretty in powerful. The it's true. Store. It's a pretty powerful statement. I like yeah, I was that just one. was in the grocery store, and this woman was upset because there was not enough personnel in the deli counter. And she was checking out right in front of me. And she said, you know, there's not enough people there, and you should have two people. And the young guy said, well, but, you know, he kept giving an explanation Well, I called in and every time that he would give an explanation, 
she would ramp up because she doesn't feel heard. So when she left, I said, you know, when you get that complaint, my suggestion is, I broke my rule, never give people advice unless they ask you. But I thought maybe I could help this young guy to just hear her out and say thank you or we're sorry. But I want her to think good things about our store. I don't want her to leave with this negative conversation, which is why we try to make things better by explaining. No, when you're explaining, you're losing. Yeah, and you're into defensive mode, and there is yes. a no win in a conversation. The moment anybody's defensive, it's not going anywhere good. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm going to give a personal confession. So for any folks out there that have ever been on the receiving side of me when I was dissatisfied with service, most of the time, all I really want you to do is to take the complaint seriously enough to raise it to your management. I know you can't fix it. But I want you to collect those and say, okay, I'll make sure somebody knows about it. That's it. That's all I want. And what's interesting about this, listening to someone else, not defending and therefore escalating it, not trying to explain and therefore escalating it, and just asking what's your request, you would get to that very simple, tiny thing that you actually needed to do that would make the biggest difference. And often, nothing. Yes. Okay, I love it. And if you can handle complaints, you can handle all of life. Heard it here first. I think that is brilliant. Okay, um, I have to quote from one of my favorite writers, David Wyatt. And I know you put this in the book. And so I want to quote it. You say, the relationship is the conversation. Tell me more about that. Well, I like it because it's simple and it puts you, makes you curious, what does he mean by that? So mm-hmm. I, I like things that are striking, simple, and I'm not quite sure. Right. Now, that quote actually brings me to Deborah Tannen's work about gender differences in conversation. Right. And she said, life is lived as a series of conversations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we could make a leap. Well, if life is a series of conversations, then clearly my relationship with you is a series of conversations. And now you can start to see, well, why are you just saying, well, so the conversation is a relationship. Yes. Now this is a very confronting idea because if you happen to be married to a guy who doesn't talk, no relationship. Or if you don't speak in meetings, no relationship. Or if you don't have access to the top managers, no relationship. Um, But the point in the context of the book is employees want to be connected to the people they work for. Mm -hmm. And if they feel included in what's going on, if they're regularly asked for their input and you really listen to their input, if you check in with them, if you say hello, people don't realize that if you're the top person, it's for everybody, but if you're the top person in the meeting, you need to make eye contact, you need to nod, you need to say hello, you need to mention the person's name of every person who walks into the room. That's your job, to acknowledge the presence of other human beings. Why? Because they take it personally. We've already got that in place. They take it personally when you don't acknowledge their presence. Same way with referring back to somebody who commented earlier in a meeting by name. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I just love that notion. Um, and you're probably familiar with Mindy Hall's work too. And she's got this personal mantra, which is, I want it to matter that we met. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I know you're busy as a top manager, but if you stop in the hallway and talk with me for five minutes, you have made my day. My week, my, my month. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm a better mom when I go home to my kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm a better a whole bunch of other things. It's amazing. 
If you take, um, so this is certainly my philosophy. I have said, and I say in print, I say on our website, everything that happens in business happens in a conversation. There is nothing we do that doesn't revolve around a conversation somewhere. And if you add to that this notion that the relationship is the conversation, and as a leader, I just stop and think about the people that are around me, peers and people I'm leading, and say, what has the conversation been between me and that person? What happened? What's, what, and that's all they've got. That's all they know about me is that conversation. It's all of our relationship. Stop. I think you would not need 360-degree feedback anymore. Oh, you're right. I remember uh, doing executive coaching for a woman who was in charge of a factory. And she would do, I think there were quarterly meetings for 500 people at a time. And she'd walk in, do a PowerPoint for 35 minutes, and then in five minutes say, do you have any questions? And I kept saying to her, Nancy, I said, why don't you just go talk to them? Well, they don't want to ask questions. They're uncomfortable. It's a large group. And there's things they shouldn't know or can't, I can't tell them. And well, then like life happens. She went in and the PowerPoint wouldn't work. Ah. So she just said, okay, talk to me. What do you want to know? And she just answered questions for 45 minutes. And the next day, she said, you know what? When I walked through the factory the next day, I had all kinds of friends it was a transformational transformation the set side the powerpoint and just talk paul we could go on forever and ever because i'm passionate about this topic i know you're passionate about it and we've only covered a handful of the 16 beautiful principles my guest today paul axtell the book that we're talking about compassionate leadership 16 simple ways to show compassion that anybody anywhere can do And I think, Paul, my big takeaway out of this conversation is this notion that the relationship is the, I'm sorry, the conversation is the relationship. Going back to look on that and the fact that I don't have to solve the problem, I just have to ask the question. I have to hear people out. Um, So thank you, Paul. Thanks for being a guest. Join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone. And if you'd like what you've heard here, like us or give us a good rating on your favorite podcast player. You can also check out our brand new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. 